0: I want to express my deep gratitude to Truett Seminary and to Dean Todd Still for two things. First, the invitation to join this community as one of its teachers. As I was looking at how I'm going to spend the rest of my uh, active years in ministry, I said to people, I'm gonna be doing something to serve Jesus. I'm just not sure where and whether anybody will pay me for it. Uh, Dean still graciously answered both of those questions and I'm grateful to have found a home for part of my ministry here. And then for the invitation to preach in chapel as a way of getting better acquainted with the larger Truett community. I show up here at 7.30 on Mondays and leave about 1.30. Um, I don't see many of you, but obviously there's more to Truett than is around on Monday mornings. And uh, so I'm glad to be here today and especially uh, grateful that Siobhan Abraham made the trip down here. Her father and I were friends for more than 40 years. I was on the search committee that brought him to Perkins School of Theology. We were colleagues. He taught me the logic of evangelism. When I succeeded him as the McCrelis Associate Professor of Evangelism, I had to write a book to get tenure, and basically what I did was take Billy's work and fix the problems in it. Um... <laughs> That might indicate to you that he and I were arguing partners for most of the 40 years. Uh, We had a deep commitment to Christ, a deep interest in the future of the Wesleyan movement, and yet some of our disagreements around things like the Wesleyan quadrilateral and how you define evangelism. He called me last spring to say that he was coming to Truett and that he and I needed to have a conversation about that. Well, at the time, I was deeply embroiled in denominational politics and wasn't sure about my future, so I said, yeah, Billy, we'll have that conversation. We never had it. His death was tragic. I miss him deeply. And yet, I'm honored to be at a school that has a William J. Abraham Chair of Theology and to be a part of what Truett is doing to broaden the scope of evangelical Christianity in America. So Dean Still, thank you for the invitation to be a part of this community, and I'm grateful to be joining with you and all of your colleagues and students as part of the Truett community. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this place, for we trust your promise that wherever there are two or more, there you'll be also. And yet God, sometimes we don't get it, and so we ask. Open our eyes that we might see you. Open our ears that we might truly hear your word And then, God, strengthen our hands and feet that we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. All this we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. This is the question. Is your church a club benefiting its members or a community of missionaries serving Christ? That may not be the most important question for your life, but I submit it is the most important question for almost every Christian congregation in America today, every denomination today. As I look at the state of Christianity, what I see are congregations that have turned inward, that have... uh, bought into a consumer approach to Christianity. So the question is, did the sermon speak to me? Is the music of my taste? Is the environment of the sanctuary something pleasing to my cultural sensibilities? And if I don't like it, I'll leave and shop for another Christian community they turn inward and demand to be served in the same way that we get served by any place else that we shop in American culture. Instead, the church of Jesus Christ is called to serve a missionary God whose mission is to save the world. Read Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you are baptized into the body of Christ, and Christ is in the business of saving the world, where are you? What are you doing? How are you engaged in that ministry? There are texts in the New Testament that bother me deeply. With Mark Twain, I say, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's texts like the Great Commission that bother me. I do understand them. And yet, when we get to those texts, they roll around in my head and I think about them a lot. In fact, there's a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that asks God's help for certain texts to help us read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. I invite you to inwardly digest Matthew 28 16 to 20. Let it roll around in your soul. And my way of really going deep into this text goes back to my 8th grade English teacher, Mrs. Taylor. She was the old school of English teachers. You had to diagram sentences. You had to look at all those parts of the English language. She loved the English language and drilled the, the grammar into us. She taught me that the power of English is in the verbs. So I invite you to think about five of the verbs in this text. Go, disciple, baptize, teach, and remember. When it comes to go, it's really the invitation that says Christians have to get out of their comfort zone and congregations have to get out of their four walls and engage people. There was a time, especially here in the South, When the whole culture presumed Christianity, and you could walk up to anybody in Texas and say, which church do you attend? Because everybody knew which church they attended or which church they would attend if they did attend, and so everybody had an answer. That was a culturally appropriate question. No longer, my friends. We live in a culture where the only appropriate question, if you're getting acquainted with somebody, is Are you a Christian? Because we're a very diverse culture with lots of different religions, but especially the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, of people who have no Christian memory, no connection to any church, and too often Christian congregations that have turned inward express a desire to receive new members, but they're relying upon an attractional model. Everybody knows we're here. Everybody knows we're a church. If they want to come, they can. We even put signs up to welcome them, but nobody ever bothers to go out and make connection with people. The future of the Christian church and its success in serving Christ requires going into places where you might not be comfortable. In a Baptist institution, I think it's important people like me tell some John Wesley stories John Wesley had his heart strangely warmed at Aldersgate Street on May 24th of 1738, but that wasn't really the start of the revival. The revival came when his friend George Whitefield, who also had a heartwarming experience, was told he couldn't preach in churches anymore, and Whitefield, being sort of the rebel that he was, started preaching out of doors. In England in this period of time, that simply wasn't done. It reminded people of the Civil War 80 years earlier. It reminded people of disorder and violation of good ways of being Christian. And so, Whitfield went and did it and had huge crowds. But he was headed to America. He writes Wesley back in London says, You need to come and see what's going on and take over this field preaching. Wesley says, I thought it was a sin to save a soul outside of church. But fortunately, he had a small group of accountability partners, and he believed that you could determine God's will by casting lots. Not everything Wesley did is worthy of emulation. But he wrote preach or don't preach on several lots and picked, fortunately, the one that said go and preach. And so he writes in his journal for April 2nd, 1739, I consented to be more vile. Todd knows that's a quote from 2 Samuel 6. I consented to be more vile and preached in the highways and byways the glad tidings of salvation to 3,000 people. Now, the first lesson from this is never let the preacher count the attendance. I do not believe there were 3,000 people there that day. But if Wesley tripled the actual number and there were only 1,000, go figure. He's connecting with non-believers. He's connecting with the unchurched. He took the gospel out into where the people were already gathering. And given the culture of the time, an Oxford Don in his full canonical robes preaching out of doors was an interesting sight. And so people came and nobody responded. Oh, out of that thousand, maybe three or four came forward. And he then invited them to come to the Methodist Society and preached. But it was Wesley's way of reaching out and gaining a connection with people who would not have ordinarily heard him. And so I asked my students in class yesterday, what is the 21st century equivalent of field preaching? If there are non-believers in your mission field, how are you connecting with them? It might make you uncomfortable. It might get you out of your comfort zone, but the question for the church of Jesus Christ is are you going to go? The second question here is to disciple. I don't like the English translation, make disciples. You need to be learning Greek at least a little bit to realize that Tusata is a single word that really is best translated by turning disciple into a verb. You are supposed to disciple other people. If our identity as Christians is to be Jesus followers, Jesus disciples, your discipleship requires that you disciple others that somehow you realize that you're on this journey of following jesus in such a way that other people catch the contagiousness of the gospel they understand what it means to live the abundant life to live an eternal life that begins here on earth and then you're discipling others as part of your own discipleship that's what we're called to do not only to go and engage non-believers but to help them be initiated into it. That's my definition of evangelism that Billy didn't like. When you're evangelizing people, you are initiating them into Christian discipleship. It's a way of life. It's a spiritual journey that involves not only embracing a prevenient grace, a recognition of our need for repentance through convincing grace, justifying grace, and then on the way to entire sanctification. That's the Christian life. That's the life of discipleship, and as you're journeying it, you need to be engaged with others so that in your discipleship, you're discipling others. Go disciple, baptize. This is not the time and place to discuss how much water or at what stage in the discipleship journey one gets baptized. You know, when America was a Christian culture, fights between Methodists and Baptists over how much water made some sense... But in a post-Christian culture, people, I'm prepared to admit that in heaven, I'm going to sit at the feet of some Baptist folks, okay? That in fact, I might be wrong on that issue, even though I don't think so. But the point is that when we baptize people, we're doing something that is profoundly counter-cultural. There are so many people immersed in social media who are being emotionally destroyed by the stuff that comes over TikTok and Facebook and all Twitter and all those other things. Because the messages that the culture gives us is, I'm not worthy, I'm too old, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm not dressed well enough, I'm not rich enough, I don't live in the right part of the country, I don't have the right toys at home. All those messages that come to us tear us down and tell us that we're not worthy. But in baptism, God marks us and said, You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. You are good just as you are. Welcome into the family of God. You are blessed. And that is important. So when we baptize people, we're telling them, You're somebody. You're somebody special. And that's a message that the world needs to hear over and over and over again. Go, disciple, baptize, teach. Kevin Rowe was a professor at Duke Divinity School wrote a little book called Christianity's Surprise. I highly commend it to you. Kevin talks about how it was that Christianity took over the Roman Empire. The first step was that they had a story of everything. That they knew that there was a God who loved everybody, who had created everything, and the Christians with their metaphysical view of the entire universe were able to present a coherent story that tied it all together. And then they had the story of the human that in Jesus of Nazareth, God had shown human beings what it really meant to be a human being and that everybody was valued, not just the Roman elite. Everybody was a child of God. That then led to the creation of institutions, institutions like orphanages and hospitals, They invented it. The Christians invented orphanages and hospitals never before seen that cared for everybody in the community because of what it means to be human because of the story of everything. And friends, this is why you're at Truett. Whether you're a pastor who just hangs out here for inspiration or whether you're in a DMIN cohort or an MDiv or whether you're a faculty member or a staff person, this is Truett's mission is to engage the entire world with the story of everything according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The university is a desired place for people to gain knowledge about all kinds of fields, from geology to business to the arts to mathematics to English to history. And yet we Christians have an obligation to tell the story of everything in accordance with the gospels. That's why you need a theological education. Because someday when you're the pastor of a church, you need to be able to teach the people of your church what the story of everything is all about and how the gospel relates to that and how they make sense of this world with so many different sources of information, so many different claims to truth that we have to stake out the Christian claim to a universal truth that says, this is the story of everything. And then Jesus says, remember. One of the sins that I'm prepared to confess publicly is the sin of works righteousness. I tend to be a practical atheist, living my life as if God didn't matter, thinking, isn't God lucky to have me on God's side? I was raised Methodist after all. Mary had a little lamb who thought he was a sheep and then became a Methodist and died for lack of sleep. We Methodists think that activity for God is the way we earn our salvation. Those are my worst moments. And yet, I read this text, and it says from Jesus, Remember, I am with you to the end of the age. It's really not about what I do for Jesus. It's about what God is doing and me being a witness, pointing to God's activity in the world. Years ago, I quit praying, God, bless what I'm doing. Part of my daily devotion time is, God, help me be a part of what you're blessing. Because I do believe God is in the business of accomplishing God's purposes. But that God has graciously invited you and me into that mission. If only we will look for where God is active recognize our own gifts and talents, the way God has wired us, and then find ways of participating what it is that God's blessing in the world. A number of years ago, I was leading a youth mission trip, driving from the North Texas area down to Corpus Christi, when the conversation among the girls in the back of my van turned to favorite movies. Preacher, they said, what's your favorite movie? I never lie. And so I told them the truth, even though it's kind of embarrassing, because it's still my favorite movie of all time, The Lion King. Yes, it's an animated children's movie. But what resonates in my heart is one of the closing scenes. Simba has been exiled. He's living the good life, Akuna matata. No worries for the rest of my days. But back home, things are falling apart. His uncle's car is ruining the circle of life. He gets word that he's needed back home, but he thinks he can't go. And so he's struggling with a choice. Do I stay in the good life of retirement or do I go back home and assume my rightful place in the pride of lions? He then has a vision of his dead father. Who says to him from the clouds, Simba, you are much more than what you have become. Remember who you are you are that's what this text does for me as i read mark learn and inwardly digest it it helps me remember not only that christ is with me to the end of the age but i'm trying to remember who i really am amen